0: Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill, and I'm here with my co-host, Ken Jacobson. Hi, Mike. Today, we speak with Kirsten Johnson, director of Dick Johnson is Dead. And I found summarizing this film to be very difficult. Almost any concise account of this film doesn't catch the full flavor of what's on offer. This may be a result of how Kirsten, or KJ as she likes to be called, approaches her work with an open mind as an act of discovery, but I'll try anyways. Dick Johnson is Dead is a meditation on the mortality of her aging father, which features several simulations of how he could die.
1: This film is just a revelation, and it's probably my favorite film of 2020. This film just really gets to me. It got to me for the first time when I saw it in 2020 at Sundance, just two months after my own father died, and it continues to reach me even now on a second or third viewing. It's so rich and so funny and so creative. And I loved hearing in our our interview how creativity is negotiated and coaxed and worked into shape by Kirsten and by her great editor, Nels Bangor, and her producers. Up until recently, Kirsten Johnson was primarily known as one of the top cinematographers, DPs, directors of photography in the documentary field. She's shot dozens of documentaries, including the Oscar-winning Citizen Four, Trapped, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, and many others. However, she's been directing documentaries during this period as well. In 1999, she directed Innocent Until Proven Guilty, which follows a young Washington DC public defender, James Foreman Jr who all three of us know from his leadership in the anti-apartheid movement at Brown University in the mid-80s.
0: Yeah, I remember James Foreman, and he is now one of the leading scholars and activists on institutional racism and imprisonment in the United States.
1: Kirsten's big breakthrough as a director came with her film Camera Person, which premiered at Sundance in 2016. It repurposed and reframed footage she shot for other people's films, to create something altogether different, personal, and self-reflective. It also served as a prelude to her 2020 film, Dick Johnson is Dead, which pushes the form and her own themes even further. Camera Person won the Best Documentary Feature Award at the Camden International Film Festival and the Cinema Eye Honors Award for Outstanding Achievement in Nonfiction Feature Filmmaking. Dick Johnson is Dead was shortlisted for an Academy Award and recently earned three Emmy nominations in documentary nonfiction categories for outstanding directing, exceptional merit, and cinematography. It also won the Sundance Jury U.S. Documentary Special Jury Award for Innovation in Nonfiction Storytelling and two IDA Documentary Awards. It has been released globally on Netflix as a Netflix original documentary.
0: I really enjoyed talking to Kirsten I found it interesting also how she turned the tables on us, challenging me and my two easy characterizations and even asking us an important question. And this seemed a reflection of her own process, her own documentary-style process, one that tries to keep filmmaking as a conversation, collapsing that subject-and-object dichotomy and allowing people to play different roles as the process proceeds.
1: I can't imagine how many interviews she's given about this film... Yet it was clear that she approached her conversation with us as something new and original and daring, like who knows where this is
0: going to lead. Up next is our conversation with KJ, Kirsten Johnson. Dick Johnson is dead. In our talk, I think you'll feel the meaning and passion at the heart of her work. KJ, welcome to Top Docs.
2: Hey, this is exciting because I go way back with Ken. Turns out I go way back with you. Turns out we were all at the same anti-apartheid protest together in college, and we didn't even know it. We just, I think if we saw pictures of each other from that time, we might really recognize each other.
1: KJ, it's great to see you again, and
0: welcome to Top Docs. Why do you make documentary films? <laughs>
2: Why do I make... Do you want to start with another one?
0: I can start with a different one.
2: No, 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 no. (laughs) You, You will find me laughing at many questions and then being filled with questions myself about the response. I think that I fell backwards into documentary films. I absolutely wanted to make fiction films. I didn't realize it at the time that I was making documentary gestures everywhere that I went. Before I knew anything about what I was doing, I was filming with Senegalese World War I veterans in Dakar. I had gone to Senegal because I was interested in the fiction films of Ousmane Sembene and of Jibril Jacques Membedi. I was waiting to get a chance to work on a set with one of those fiction films, and then I realized that there were these World War One veterans were still alive. And so I borrowed someone's camera and started filming them. I was very interested in actual people, even though my cinema vision was things that I will imagine. I was deeply interested in people that I met.
0: How would you describe Dick Johnson as dead?
2: Dick Johnson is dead is an act of desperation. I was gonna say my love for my father is an act of desperate love, but it's not. The love I have for my dad is not desperate. It's been going on for my entire life. I, I you know, just learned from camera person that cinematic language, searching with cinematic language gives you the chance to explore your deepest questions. And those might be societal questions, And also personal questions. Having lived through my mother's Alzheimer's and then not even being fully aware that my dad had dementia, I think I just was desperate for cinema to help me with the situation. And I was also desperate for comedy to help me because I was not prepared for another decade of only grieving and of only seriousness and cinema helped.
0: That's really interesting. <laughs> cinema is therapy. So that kind of goes to the question. No, me...
2: I, I, I'm pushing back on you oh, already. Good. It's too easy a shorthand. It's not cinema as therapy because I do therapy and therapy is a different thing to me. This is the craft of cinema in relation to a history of cinema, in relation to a world of peers of filmmakers who are pushing the form, not just in the abstract We are pushing the form right now because there are profound reasons to push the form. This was a a way for me to engage with the most meaningful person in my life as I'm on the verge of losing him, and to engage with pushing the craft that I love and respect so much as far as I possibly can. It wasn't me trying to work through something on a therapeutic level. It was me saying, how do I work with this set of collaborators, including my father, and make something that takes us all into new territory? So definitely, it wasn't therapy.
0: One of my sons said, why did she want to do this? Why did she want to simulate her father's death? Would that be the answer you give him? or?
2: Well, you know, the producers, Marilyn Ness in particular, it was Marilyn Ness and Katie Chevigny and then Maureen Ryan, co-producer, they were always asking me, why do you want to kill him again? Why do you want to kill him? It took me a long time to be able to answer that because I would sometimes, you know, it's going to be funny because it'll be funny. (laughs) I desperately need to be funny. But the real answer and one of the first actions of making the film was doing my father's funeral while he was still alive. And that came from a place of, I really wanted to hug my mother after her funeral is over. And so this cinematic act gave me a chance to f- hug my father after his funeral, for real. That's really what it was for me. And then little by little, I realized, oh, why am I killing him over and over again? It's because we're bringing him back to life over and over again. And that's the wish for him to never die. Also, who wants to watch a movie about dementia and death? Like your kid would never have watched it if I didn't kill him. I don't think, <laughs> I mean, maybe he would have.
1: I wanted to jump in with the opening scene of your movie and have you talked to us a bit about when that scene was maybe shot. You talked a little about the funeral scene. By the time you shot that scene with your kids and your dad, where were you in, in this process?
2: That scene of my dad playing in the barn was very early in the process of making the film. I thought I was practicing to make the film. I was trying to imagine how observational documentary approach might be able to cut to an imagined stunt situation. So I was literally like, huh, maybe if I shoot, on sticks. And here I am already using language I don't like to use. I'm like, I'm working on like shifting all of the language that I use. I try not to say the word shoot. And then I always say it. I was filming. I really don't like to say it. I was lensing. I was filming even though I was working on video. Normally in a situation like that with kids running around, my dad, I would have been handheld because I needed the fluidity and versatility. The other thing that I was doing foolishly, is like, I didn't really think I was filming because I was doing this on my downtime while taking care of my kids and my dad. (laughs) And I was like, I'll just bring my camera along and see if we can play and see what it might be like when we make a movie with stunts in it. I wanted to film on a tripod because I was thinking, oh, with these locked off shots, we could then cut into locked off shots with a stunt person. I was like imagining, and I had Harold and Maude in my mind, and I was like, ooh, we've got a rope swinging. At the time, I was thinking a lot about, is there gonna be a moment where my dad commits suicide in the movie? Will we have a, he's hanging from a cord moment? In the midst of that, it dawned on me like, ooh, this is a little tricky for my dad. I was up in the hayloft filming down when I realized, whoa, the hay's really slippery. So I came down with the camera and dad was continuing to push the kids. Talk about the ethical dilemma. I was literally thinking like, oh, maybe I better like help dad out here, but wow. I wish I was on a wider lens so then I can help him out. And that'll be in the shot when my dad slipped and fell. So basically I missed the shot (laughs) in my mind. And also I was like, whoa, my dad just slipped and fell. Is he okay?
0: It was a real slip and fall afterwards. I had to say, as I was watching the film, I was like, wait a minute. Was that a stunt
2: earlier? And we played around with the sound of it. And we went really far where it was like a big gag. We dialed it down, which we did throughout the film. We were always shifting the tone on the sound level to see like, "Huh, how does that play? How does that play? What does that do? And so that scene went through a bunch of iterations where it was like then we brought it back to a more naturalistic thing because we realized we were going to be in the earnest zone to start the movie
0: the focus goes in and out a bit and whether it's a mistake or not it seems to have potentially some meaning it's
2: part of radical transparency to allow into the movie the searching that i am doing as a person and as a camera person and I'm always searching for focus. It's hard to find and people are moving and when you're shooting with a long lens, forget about it, you can't hold on to focus and focus is such a metaphor for dementia, memory, (laughs) all of it, attention.
1: I, I did wanna go back when you initially started to think, I wanna make a movie about my dad, his dying, about death and I wanna make it with him. I just need to figure out how to do it and I need to talk to him about it.
2: Beginnings is always such a interesting question, right? Because what are origin stories, and how many of them do we have? I can actually trace the origin stories of Dick Johnson is dead to, to like in the in hundreds of directions. My dad and I have enjoyed the morbid humor of Charles Adams and Monty Python and Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks, like throughout our lives together. So there was already sort of complicity around that. And then there was a really weird thing when I was a kid, we had gone to some friend's house for lunch and it was next to a cemetery. A bunch of kids climbed a tree and we were up in the tree and then a funeral came and was right beneath us. It was a super intense funeral, people were sobbing and it was a gorgeous sunny day. We were up in the tree, no one had noticed us there. There are many origins to my relationship to cinema but it was a deeply cinematic experience and it was a super dissonant experience where i was watching people sobbing and crying and really feeling and i was happy because we were having so much fun and then it was thrilling that we were trapped in the tree and we could see this and they couldn't see us that sort of observational position that one often has with a camera i think i experienced it for the first time oh they have a life. I have a life. Those two things are different, but I, I can enter through vision. I can enter their world. So that's one of the origin stories.
0: Can I raise another one? Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about Vertov and for the listener, Vertov, man with a movie camera in the 1920s, filmed in Ukraine. I had never watched it in its entirety. Thank you for getting me to watch it. It's a hundred years old and it's still amazing. It's, it's-
2: amazing. I was raised religiously and there's this idea of resurrection since my childhood, I have been attuned to the idea of people coming back to life. I stopped being a religious person, but I held within me the constructs of religion and the fantasies of religion, um, of my particular religion, Seventh-day Adventism within me. And it's super like, you're going to come back to life religion. When I saw a man with a movie camera. It's so kinetic. It's like a camera person moving through the city at high speed and it's changing speed. But then there's this really incredible moment where you see a still image of a person and then you see moving images of the same person. I had loved photography and loved painting. But when I saw that moment, the difference between the still image and the moving image, it was like, ah, that's death and the moving image is life. So that was just like, boom, revelation, sort of cinema keeps people alive.
0: He shows you how it's done, right? He shows you how he films a car moving at speed. He shows you how the editor, he actually shows film clips. And this seems to be a theme in your work as well. I think a camera person, At the very beginning, you show the camera pointing to the ground. You show yourself running. You show yourself breathing. We see a response to the lightning. You sneeze and the camera bounces. I think that's designed to remind us there's a person behind the camera. This is a long English major question, by the way. There's a person, it's not camera. It's camera person. And for Vertov, I think it's more political. It's revealing the means of production. Art isn't mystery. It's just like any other production. In Dick Johnson is Dead, you not only... Simulate your father's death, you show how it's done. You show the stunt people, you back up and show yourself in the shot. What's the purpose of that? Why do you want to show yourself and the means of production, as it were, in this particular film?
2: I do think that radical transparency is political. And I would say, in many ways, I am involved in a political act. I believe that the world, that humans, that I myself are more complicated than anybody can imagine or even wrap our heads around. We're encouraged in life to perform knowing when in fact, we don't have a clue. You all are doing this podcast, Top Docs. What are you doing? What are you actually up to? Why are you doing this at this moment in time? You've got some conscious ideas and then you've got ideas that have to do with things you've wished for for your entire life and you're exploring it through doing this work. I found in the role of being the camera person every single day of filming, I would encounter something that I didn't see coming. I would have thoughts racing through my mind about how dense the situation was and that it would never be possible to open up to the world, what was being opened up to me. What's the director thinking and doing? What's the person we're filming thinking and doing? What is this world we've entered? What am I doing? What's the sound person doing? It's interesting with Vertov because he's a political activist on behalf of the worker. My father's father was a gardener and this loving, wonderful man who worked really hard physically his entire life. My grandparents were absolutely all working class people. Becoming Seventh-day Adventist moved them into the upper middle class of my father being a doctor. Then I was educated out of the Seventh-day Adventist system into the Ivy League of the United States of America, where I got to, you know, be with the elite children of this country. I suddenly saw myself in that dimension. And then I became a camera person and people began to treat me as a worker. As someone who carried things, who took the service entrance, who was not addressed or spoken to, my father was a psychiatrist. He sat down for a living. But my father was very tuned in to people who worked physically for a living. As the years went by of me being a camera person and feeling like, oh, your back starts to hurt and you have muscles and you're thirsty and hungry, but the people you're working for don't feed you, (laughs) I started to identify with being a physical worker. I started to identify with the drivers of the cars, with the translators, at the same time that I was identifying with the directors and the producers and having dialogues with all those people, but also being like, has anybody talked to the driver? Like, she really knows what's going on here. <laughs> and then I developed these complicities with the sound people I worked with. So I worked with Wellington Bowler, who is African-American and people always imagined that he was less smart than he was, except when he encountered Black people and then they were like, whoa, who are you? Then I worked with Judy Carp, who is very small, who is older than me and watched people underestimate her And both of them, because they're sound people, never say a word. They just take it in, clock people, notice. I, over time, through these interactions with the crew of people who made films, started to really feel like, wow, it's interesting who we invisibilize in this process of filmmaking. We hold directors up and in front of everyone, but in fact, there's this whole crew of people making films, and we we pretend they're not there.
0: And you're trying to show them on the film to, to render. Yeah, so that. I so
2: for me, in some ways, camera person became see the camera person, see the sound person, see the translator, see the driver. Then with Dick Johnson, I was delighted by the idea of stunt people who literally risk their lives to be invisible. I just love that. I was really into, like, how do we make a film where, like, My dad's real life and death thing is up against the real life and death thing of a stunt person. In some ways we didn't go as far into that as I wished to, but that was the impulse of like the radical transparency. Let's all try to see each other.
1: To that point, one of the people who's seeing your crew interacting with them is of course your father and his interactions with them, whether it's with the stunt guy in his office or with your sound person or the makeup people in the trailer, his reactions to that affect him and in turn help determine the course of the film and lots of personal relationships that are gonna be key to your lives and to the making of the film.
2: There's something in what I was just speaking of earlier about seeing other people and the attempt to not underestimate anyone and to always remain open to not only how you can be surprised by someone, but by how you can be blown away by someone and that they are a total mystery to you. When we invited the stunt person, Mike Lowe, to come to speak with my dad, my dad was pretty far into his dementia. He was already starting to loop a little bit and asking questions. But what was amazing to me was we had Mike there and we were gonna talk about the film and talk about stunt people, but my dad locked into being a therapist talking about therapy and cinema, my dad like did what he does in the chair. He went there so fast with Mike. He had Mike talking about stunt people who commit suicide, about alcoholism, about the sort of damage that stunt work does to the body and to the mind. And I was just knocked out because my dad at this stage was not necessarily able to carry on really uh, elaborate conversations but he still knew how to ask powerful questions and he still knew how to observe another human. I was seeing things in Mike that I didn't imagine and I was seeing things from my dad that I didn't imagine. I think a lot of times when people make films with people they love, they're searching for information that they don't have yet or know. And to a great extent, it's like, yeah, I know I love my dad, I'm good. I don't need any more revelations, but this process gave me so many questions about what is a self and how is it that my father, in spite of the dementia, is able to be such a perceptive psychiatrist in any situation.
1: Clearly, you have an openness to other people as well. And some of the more memorable scenes in the movie are where you engage with people like Mike, a different Mike, who's the guy who's gonna tear down the the bookshelf in his office, and you engage with him about death, him losing his father, and he shares some great insights. I think what you were saying before about working class people and bringing them into your films.
2: I have such deep respect for working class people, as I have deep respect for people who live in the most extreme poverty. How people are Getting through and still having senses of humor and not like wanting to kill everybody is beyond me (laughs) on a certain level. I'm very aware of the systems of power that class creates for all of us and the way in which we're all trapped within these systems in our attempts to interact with each other. I'm thinking about all of those things when I'm interacting with people, but I'm just truly deeply curious about any human I encounter, and this is my turn with you both. The question I asked, I think literally everyone I worked with on this project, including the two Mikes, all journalists that I talked to, how do you want to die? Ken, how do you want to die, Mike?
0: That's the, yeah. <clears throat> so let's talk about mortality. Cause I think it's very interesting. No, no, uh,
2: no I'm literally asking you the question. Okay. That's fair enough.
0: I think I'm so I'm very bourgeois and old school and you know, like, uh, uh, 87 and in my sleep.
2: With your family gathered around you, or? Eh,
0: somewhere, yeah. No, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. Ken? Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, I really don't know. So you will provoke me to think about it, but I, I don't have a way in mind that I want to die. I don't, so I don't know.
2: It could be a wish, but you can't, or like I was before making Dick Johnson is dead. I'm an if I dieer right? <laughs> like, maybe I'll be dying. <laughs> One
0: of the things in the film that really strikes me is while you do these simulations of your father's death, we all are doing simulations of our death in some ways. And I'm going to drop the Lacan bomb here and talk about between, <laughs> between, <laughs> between the two deaths, right? So like social death and actual physical death, there's some really touching scenes where your father's moving out of his office. There's that very interesting answering machine message that's left for his patients. He loses his car. In some ways, he's undergoing social death.
2: Just- totally, totally. It's funny, you know, I filmed the whole film about Jacques Derrida, but I, I never succeeded in reading Lacan's.
0: One of my favorite parts of a camera person is when Derrida's watching out for you as you cross Houston Street. You know, oh my like- god,
2: and as I nearly got run over. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's very oh. sweet to see him do Yeah, that. he
2: and I had such an interesting back and forth. There was lots of tension in our relationship because he knew what the camera could do. I think I didn't realize as much as he did what the camera could do. You're teaching me that term and I haven't thought about it in that way. I've thought a lot about anticipatory grief, grieving ahead of time, because that's what I did with my mother and what this film is with my father in a certain way. It didn't occur to me, like you're saying, Ken, Like it didn't occur. it doesn't occur to you that you're gonna die. You haven't thought about it yet. Forgive me for laughing. Occurred to me I'm
1: going to die. Yeah,
2: yeah. like with my father. Too scared to face it. He's my father, I would say it didn't occur to him that he was going to die. So even though we went through my mother's Alzheimer's together, even though he's been a psychiatrist for 50 years, I think he thought he was going to dodge it. And so I don't think he expected social death. It only started happening through the dementia, there were moments when he had awareness about it that my mother never had self-awareness about it. There are these classic moments, like my father waking up in the middle of the night thinking there's a patient downstairs. I can't convince him to not go downstairs because he's sure there's a desperate suicidal patient in the lobby of the apartment building. We go down there and he looks around and he's like, there's no one here, is there? And I say, nope. And he says, wow, it must be really hard for you to watch your father losing his mind. And then he immediately flips it and goes for a joke. All the guys with the straight jacket. I'm ready to go. And then he flips it again with like consummate manipulation, like, but you're really going to miss me. <laughs> you know, and that's in three sentences, one after another. That thing about the awareness that you are leaving the world, the social world that you have known and built. My father is now in a dementia care facility near my brother in DC and he has rebuilt a world. He's got friends, he is counseling people, he's joking with the caregivers, he's got a woman who thinks he's very special and he is doing all of the things he did as a psychiatrist, I would say even as a person in intimate relationships, as a member of a community, he's doing that on this tiny scale with eight other people who have dementia and the set of caregivers who take care of him. So he has recreated a social world. I would say he has made a social shift. It is not a social death. He is not alone.
0: I see you were showing him cuts of the film as you're going along. What was his reaction to it?
2: The thing that was really beautiful for me was that it was a portal so that as his memory started to like be harder for him to access, the movie was a way in. So he got to be in our house, he got to see his friends, see them again, see my mom again. It really functioned as time travel for him. And also he'll laugh at what he thinks is funny, and a lot of times like I'd be like, this is funny, and he'd be like, no. <laughs> When he falls at the bottom of the stairs and the blood spreads and his leg is twisted, we did that work in post in VFX and we would bring it in and there'd be like a little bit of blood and his leg would be a little bent and he wouldn't laugh. He was the laugh meter. Let's keep cranking the leg, crank it more, crank it more, and then finally he laughed at that scene. I was like, yes. So he was our always fresh audience member.
1: I think you've given us a window into your mind that you must have been constantly going through while you were making the film, which is I'm my father's daughter. I'm one of his caregivers. I am also going to be his roommate soon. I need to take care of all these things and most important, him. I'm also directing this movie. How in the hell did you manage to balance those two distinct roles? without going nuts yourself?
2: Great question, Ken. I feel like that comes from a place of experience (laughs) and knowledge, right? Like these juggles we do are insane. I would say I came close to going nuts myself at a certain moment in the process when I wasn't getting enough sleep. In September of 2019, when we were trying to finish the film, the idea of this film was truly, and I say this so fully, we wanted this movie to teach us how to make it. And we were determined to keep changing it as what we understood changed. I would often say this thing to the editor, the extraordinary Nels Bangor, it's like, time to drop the bowling ball in the movie. Nels, in September, he was like, KJ, we cannot drop the bowling ball right now. And I was like, I'm dropping a bowling ball. The bowling ball I was referring to was we shot all those Heaven and Hell scenes and I was super excited about them and Nels was like, we've got the movie. I don't see that working. And I was like, oh, that works. That's going in the movie. And he was just like, no, the structure I have created will be destroyed. And I was like, yeah. Then there was a moment where we were getting feedback and he was like, KJ, I'm dropping the bowling ball. We have to write some voiceover. You know, it's just like, no, because we had he and I held out really long. There's no voiceover in this movie because of what we've done with Camera Person. And then we got this feedback, really strong feedback that came from Jason Spingarn-Coff at Netflix, who was working with Kate Townsend, Lisa Nishimura, watching the whole process. And he was like, you throw your dad under the bus, you never throw yourself under the bus. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, I got me. All right, guess I have to review myself a little more. So in September, I was not sleeping because my dad was getting up multiple times in the middle of the night. My kids were going to school and I had to write voiceover, which anyone who's made anything knows that's the hardest thing to do. <laughs> Nels and I were editing remotely. So Nels was working three hours earlier than me. So we were often talking at like midnight, two in the morning, three in the morning. And then I just started to have heart palpitations and my heart was beating and it was like metaphoric. I could feel my heart in my throat. I could feel my heart on my sleeve. I could feel my heart being like ripped out of my chest. And I went to the cardiologist and they are like, are you under any stress? And I was like, no. (laughs) And then I described the situation and the heart doctor was like, you're experiencing extreme heartbreak. And I was like, yeah. That is exactly what is happening to me.
1: Did you feel like you had to pull back from directing the film to for your no, own No,
2: no, I couldn't. No, we were out of time. We had committed to, we were gonna submit the film to Sundance and we were gonna finish the film and we were close and I knew I just had to dig deeper, but wow, it was really wrenching and scary. What happens if I give myself a heart attack making this movie? We'd always joked about those things, like, what happens if K.J. dies before Dick Johnson? And Nels was extraordinary through this process, and I would write, like, as you can see, listening to me answer questions, I would do like the 12-minute VO for a spot that was like 30 seconds in the film. Nels would be like, let's get down to the core information here. <laughs> and I realized, yeah, there's some critical things I need to say in this, and it allowed things, like the opening of the film, that was impossible without it. And we just went back to like, this is what we want cinema to do for us. You can use any tool you need in cinema, VFX, voiceover, do it. Use what you need.
1: Speaking of your narration, which is, I think, just beautiful, by the way. You did a terrific job. Hard (laughs) one. You really nailed it, so.
2: It was definitely co-written with Nels.
1: Were you writing throughout? Or did you have a massive session at the end?
2: We were never considering having voiceover. I I often beat myself up that I don't keep journals and don't keep diaries and I'm not writing throughout. But I think of all these languages in which we speak, speaking, (laughs) writing, filming, recording, question asking, like these all require prodigious amounts of energy. When I was working as a camera person, I I could barely fall into my bed at the end of every day, let alone, oh, write a journal about what happened that day. I had written the journal in what I had filmed. I didn't do hardly any writing throughout the process of Dick Johnson is Dead, like just tiny little bits, like I tried to write, a eulogy for my father, impossible to ask. But I really was trying to avoid writing any voiceover. And we avoided it until the very, very last moment, basically. But then what was really cool was then this thing that we had said, is like the film will teach us how to make it. I was literally in the closet because my children were sleeping in the living room. My father was sleeping in the bedroom and I was working with Nels at three in the morning. There was no place for me to be to try to record VO. So I was in the closet and my dad woke up and came and opened the door and said, what are you doing in there? And I didn't stop recording. And I heard the very sort of pretentious... Even the way I'm talking to you now, this isn't exactly how I talk when I talk to people, right? Like I'm talking to you, we're on a podcast. I'm like trying to speak well. And I heard the difference in my voice, the falseness in my voice or the performative nature of my voice in the VO that I was doing from how I talked to my dad once he interrupted me. And I suddenly became aware of myself as a performer, as capable of acting, of like, inhabiting my emotions when I spoke. So that was like a huge transformation moment. I'd never thought of myself as capable of doing VO before my father interrupted me while doing it. That was the way the movie worked. The
0: whole movie feels very freighted with meaning. It's almost like even the most mundane scenes are about Mortality from the very first scene where you're swinging and there's discussion of death. The fly trying to kill the fly. The fly's hanging on for life. When your father talks about the death of his grandmother, one of your kids clicks on and off the light switch. It's accidental. Lights but it's-
2: are crazy. The light switches stuff is crazy. <laughs> I've got really brilliant people I work with. Judy Carp, the sound person, and me when we're filming, we're thinking of all kinds of levels of things. So if something happens, we'll remind ourselves of another one of the themes. I often share this with young camera people of like, they're like, how do you do what you do? I keep like this running list in my brain of all the themes. I believe the movie speaks to. And when I am out filming in the world, if I see something, I'm like, ah, sweet, ah and I'll go for it. I'll pay attention to it, because I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. There's death. And death is one of my themes. Now, I would say a lot of that is fully unconscious. Like when I filmed the fly scene with my father and the kids, it's just about watching how playful and funny my dad is. That was way before I was ever had the idea to make Dick Johnson. I was just filming around the house like it had nothing to do with Dick Johnson is dead. But death is clearly one of my themes. Humor is one of my themes. The absurd is one of my themes. So whenever I see those, I'm just like, okay, (laughs) what's happening? I talk about entanglement in camera person. So quantum physics, the dark matter of the universe. I think there's some crazy stuff going on. I don't understand it. But for example, the light switching Nels he also sees themes and systems and details so he's culling those things out of footage where lots of things get said that aren't very interesting but somehow he found my kid turning off the light switch my mom turning off the light switch my dad turning off the light switch and he put all of those in Other editors would have cut that out when the scene goes black. And then the miraculous outcome of this back and forth between me and Nels, after we'd broken the movie multiple times at the very last minute, really late, we had the funeral all at the beginning of the movie. We moved the whole funeral to the end of the movie and it was in pieces. Nels' mission was like, I need the audience to understand that the Coffin was filmed in front of a green screen. And I was like, I don't care about that. My mission is that people know that the people in the audience really know and love my dad. And I was just like, Ah, oh, that doesn't matter. Then we literally had to deliver the movie the next morning at 8 AM and the whole funeral scene didn't function. We just kept working. Marilyn Ness came in at this moment with these like incredibly precise questions. And then Nels, he came up with the thing of having the coffin flick on and off and then fade away as his way of communicating. It was green screened. And I was like, Nels, you've done it. You're turning the light switch on and off. And it's like death. It turns you on or turns you off or it fades away. And he was like, what? And it hadn't even occurred to him, but he'd been living with a film in which the light gets switched on and off. And we've been talking about all these metaphors for death. And that's what I love about collaboration. That's what I love about the creative process is like some mysterious freaky stuff happens under pressure. Tapping into the hallucinatory, tapping into the dream state. I'm just being reminded of re-watching Fanny and Alexander after my mom died. I had seen it once before, but I forgot that the father comes back. And right before that happened, I swear to God, I felt my mom like (sighs) grab my hand and then the father appeared and I was just like, what is happening? Years later, I heard Oliver Sacks talking to Terry Gross and he's like, people have a lot of actual hallucinations of the people that they loved right after their deaths. They are sensory. You feel things, you smell things, you see things, you touch things about the person. That's what cinema is. Cinema is a hallucination. So I'm like creating a hallucination of my father, not making a movie about him.
1: You're also creating a lot of resonances with your audience because everyone to some extent has been touched by death. I saw your film when it premiered at Sundance in January, 2020, and that was only two two years, sorry, two months after my own father died at 92. He had a long life, a good life. He was a good man. I see some of Dick Johnson in my dad. He wasn't a psychiatrist, but he was a very loving man who could be playful, had a good sense of humor, loved his family, and in turn was loved by his family deeply and was still greatly missed by my sister and myself.
2: What's Um, your dad's name? Arnold. Arnold. Arnold.
1: A very old school name. I love it. <laughs> what One of the things that resonated for me was your dad's love of chocolate and chocolate cake. Not only did my dad love chocolate and he used to squirrel away like candies and bits of chocolate bars and so on. We used to go out to lunch and toward the end I noticed the things he was ordering at restaurants tended to be almost like kids food. He would order like waffles with syrup and whipped cream. This is your lunch. This is an interesting (laughs) menu selection. And clearly he was rediscovering the joys and pleasures of his youth and just giving in to those simple pleasures.
2: Yeah. This is where I'm like, I want to ask you more questions of like, why did Arnold like chocolate? And did he always like chocolate? My dad always loved chocolate. And he um, would go and get a chocolate milkshake after school every day (laughs) at this amazing drugstore creamery near fresno california when you were talking mike earlier about the ways in which there's this sort of density of like every scene's about mortality i do think cinema can hold like deep thickness of meaning so that you can have multiple things happening simultaneously. And when I think about loving sugar or chocolate, it's so many things. It's permission and it's pleasure and it's transgression. The list goes on and on of what it means to love eating chocolate. There is a way in which my father was always a kid, but I think there are ways in which we're all always kids. Once you are free of your awareness of certain responsibilities, then what happens to you, right? What do you default to? I remember so well leaving my mother in the dementia care facility at the very end of her life. Someone said, maybe my therapist was like, you should give her a stuffed animal. I was just like, I'm not going to infantilize my mother that way. But I was desperate and I was like, got her this puppy. Oh my goodness. My mother would talk to that little dog and pet it and hold it. And like totally brought that little dog to life for her in the moment in the film where we've tucked that little rabbit in with my dad for his nap. Just this awareness that those of us who have lived through some things, which I would say is all of us. We know we need tenderness. We know we need comfort. We know we need pleasure. We know we need like soft little things because this life is hard. (laughs) Give me a bowl of chocolate ice cream. Give me a stuffed animal. In some ways there's shame or humiliation about having some of those needs. And yet I think every human is like just a little more tenderness and recognition would be awesome.
1: There's also a dark thread to the chocolate cake, too, because he has the three slices of chocolate cake prior to his heart attack.
2: And I almost killed him. I really embrace the contradictions of this work. I do not think, like, we're anywhere in which there's only one emotion or there's only like this is good and this is bad that kind of binary stuff is not happening this is life this is death no there's there's a whole lot of stuff in between those two things when you're saying that about cake of of course there's the, the like evil dangerous the horror of like children getting coffee beans and cacao like to make chocolate no like the horror show of what is the history of sugar like all of that (laughs) is in all of this privilege and why does this man get a movie he's already had a life like Arnold's life he already got it all so so there's feeling in that too of the sort of self-indulgence of eating waffles for lunch of eating chocolate ice cream every day, of making a movie about your own father, like it's just pure self-indulgence. Get over it.
1: Yep. And then he's eating the chocolate cake that your kids have prepared for him. And then the next scene is the EMT scene, June 23rd, 2019. Honestly, at this point, you've got my head spinning and I don't know if that's real or not. It
2: wasn't real, Ken. We totally fabricated that. We fabricated it knowing that we had to do our best to try to kill my dad for real. Because that was the original concept of the film. We're going to make the film until he really dies for real. And then when I decided to stop early, I was like, we have to have the like, you don't know what to think. So in the way, my father punked me many times in the making of this film during the funeral he was listening to people on headphones from the balcony and he was sobbing and i said this is really hard isn't it dad and he looked at me he's like yeah and he's i really miss that guy (laughs) and how do we do that so we hired actual emts we brought my dad we put him in an ambulance and it was actually too upsetting for him it was hard on him and so we ended up having Simon Mendez, the associate producer on the film, played my dad in the ambulance, and I tried to imagine what I would do if I was in an ambulance while my dad was having a heart attack. So we did multiple takes of it, and I dropped my phone multiple times in the service of cinema.
1: I think what makes that scene stand out, though, is its relationship to the audience. I guess you could say you're punking the audience, but you're doing it so much with the way it's shot compared with any other scene in the movie, really. And that does seem tied to how the audience is left at the end, which is, I guess Dick died. I'm not sure, did Dick die?
2: I don't know. Almost all of us have cell phones now. We have cameras. And because of what we're seeing in the world, because someone turned on the camera, At a critical moment when they didn't know what was going to happen. We've seen people's deaths. We've seen someone shoot someone while filming. We've seen all kinds of things we don't want to see, that we need to see, that have been hidden from us. I say the phrase, we're all camera people now. I've been a camera person for 30 years who carries a camera and works with a boom operator, but If my dad was having a heart attack, I would not bring that camera, but I would bring my phone and I would find myself in the dilemma. Okay, if this were to really happen while I'm actually making this movie, would I film it? Yeah, I would, but at a moment it would just be like, screw it, okay, I'm not filming anymore. Like I dropped my phone, I don't care. So that was the thought process. And then it was just amazing. My dad had a health incident while staying with my brother before the film was made. And the ambulance came and took my dad, and my brother filmed it all. And he's like, do you need it for the movie? We were sort of torn between the real ambulance footage or the fake ambulance footage, but mine looked more real than the real thing because my brother was trying to film it well for my movie.
1: Let's talk for a few minutes in detail, if we can, about the funeral scene because it's a tour de force. It's so critical to the film. And it's just incredibly moving.
2: Thank you so much for what you're saying. I really do feel like the story of the funeral scene holds all of the aspects of the filmmaking process that I hold so dear. It was a high level collaboration every step of the way because the stakes were so high for me. This is my real dad. (laughs) And this is the real church he went to and these are the real people who love him. This is a real big deal for me, who was a believing kid, who went to that church every Saturday and dreamed of inhabiting that space with my own imagination. There's so many, I call them magical, but I think they're really profound things that came out of this process because of how we collaborated around it. My brother really opposed the idea of doing the funeral. I think just on an emotional level, my brother opposed the idea of my father dying, right? <laughs> and, and this is what happens between siblings and why there are these sort of terrible, fraught situations with siblings whose parents are aging. Uh, it's really high stakes for everyone so there was that and then there were the entire community of my father's friends who i had to get on board with this idea including the pastor of the church and so that process was all about relationships i needed my brother's opposition in some ways to realize how high the stakes were and my first idea was to have my dad in a casket at the front of the room for real while the ceremony happened. And my brother literally said, over my dead body, that is not happening. So then that gave us this idea. Okay. We'll do it with green screen. Okay. In the making of this, I'm not going to make a film about my dad and get into a feud with my brother. That's never going to end. So getting to that collaboration with my brother around what was possible was like this huge step. The other two camera people, Nadia Hallgren and John Foster, are deep friends of mine, long-term collaborators. They had positions and they had a mission, but I said to them, hey, we all know how this works. If you need to move or go anywhere or do anything, I trust you. And so at the moment that I came down with my dad at the end of the service, Nadia was supposed to stay up front on her tripod with the camera She took her camera off the tripod, came back at the moment the service was ending and just touched me and took my camera away from me. And she shot that incredible shot of my dad walking down the aisle, which allowed me to be with my family and allow my father to have his moment alone, which he wouldn't have had if I was filming that moment. He would have been cued into me and what I wanted. But once Nadia was doing that, he just looked at the people who were there for him. That's about my relationship with Nadia and our years of working on films together and apart and years of talking about films and the trust that we've built allows that sort of the peak moment of me to hand her the camera when she asks for it because I know I can trust her. And similarly, John Foster, Filmed the moment of Ray sobbing in the corner, which was totally not what he was supposed to be filming. As camera people, we know it's like, you got to be tied into the zone <laughs> of the unknown.
0: Ray playing the horn. To me, it's perfect emblem for the film because it's incredibly moving. And at the same time, to be super honest, it's funny.
2: Yeah, we made it funny. It was not as funny as that in real life. That's not the sound of his real horn. It's not the duration. We cut in all those reaction shots. So once again, like we'll use any trick in the book to try to cheat death or try to get a laugh. I'm definitely inspired by the jackass guys and how far they go and the transgression of their work. But I I do perceive their work as being filled with deep love.
0: I think this is the first time that Vertov and Steve-O from Jackass have been mentioned <laughs> as influences on the same film. This is uh oh, yeah. we're breaking ground here.
2: Oh yes, we are. With that horn, it was funny, but you were too embarrassed to laugh. Then working with Pete Horner at Skywalker, who's just this incredible sound designer who changed the very nature of camera person at the very last moment of the sound edit. He's such a visionary. He's so extraordinary around emotion. And I purposefully said, I want to come to the sound mixing studio multiple times at the beginning of this process, in the middle of this process, in the late middle of this process, and at the very end of this process, which is what we did, which is like expensive and weird. Skywalker did all these things to be able to like not lose Pete's work when all the time codes changed. It was technically very challenging to do, We played with tone and we had that funeral scene early on and we realized, oh, we can go all kinds of places tonally with this scene. Playing with sound, you can make the sound of a body hitting the ground funny or like horrifying, hit you in the gut or not hit you in the gut. We knew tone was always gonna be the challenge of the film and that sound design was gonna be the key. But my original idea was, I'm gonna do this f- fake funeral at the beginning of the movie making process and I'm gonna keep making this movie until my dad really dies for real and we film his real funeral again in that church. Honestly, like once we did that funeral, I was like, I'm done. We're never coming back here to this church to do this funeral. I woke up just super depressed the morning after the funeral cause, and everyone's like you ecstatic because it gone so well and I woke up so depressed. I was like, what is wrong with me? And I was like, oh. I think I really believe that doing a fake funeral would mean my father would never have to die.
1: That's interesting because the way it's presented, it is triumphal. There is that shot, that incredible shot that you described where you see your father going up the aisle and people are clapping and hugging him and he's so happy. And then it culminates in the group hug with your brother and I presume his wife and you. And then there's the freeze frame. Which kind of takes us back to Vertov. Vertov,
2: yep. Right there. And that was totally conscious and deliberate. Can you freeze time? Guess what? You can't. And and, and I think, you know, it's perspective. Cinema's all about perspectives. How you gain it, you lose it. You gain focus, you lose focus. I just love that in some ways, like, yeah, we had the idea in the beginning, that the funeral was going to open and close the movie. We just didn't know how that was going to happen. And it was a triumph. I did get to hug my dad at the end of the funeral, and yet my dad's still gonna die. So it's all things, like the chocolate, it's all things.
0: What are you working on that you could talk about?
2: What's up next for me is I discovered a process making Dick Johnson is Dead that I'm pretty excited about. (laughs) The process by which we were able to film that thing that we did in the Halloween scene to be able to go from an experience with my dad and then he went into his own experience and then we found him afterwards. So we'd been out trick-or-treating and then I left him in a friend's apartment and I came back and he was completely lost in the apartment. So then to find a way to imagine his experience and then film it and then back it into footage that we'd actually filmed and then come out of it again with footage that we'd actually filmed, being able to insert the imagination into documentary footage. I feel like that's the process I'm pushing in really. Interesting directions in my mind. <laughs> and hoping that I will get the chance to go there with a lot of different people.
0: KJ, okay, really want to thank you for joining us today.
2: It's been a pleasure. I hope we uh, got as juicy as you wanted to.
0: Thank you so much, Kirsten.
1: And congratulations on the film, which continues to open up each time I watch it. And there's just so much more in there. Things keep happening in my own life and I just refer right back to your film.
2: That means a lot to me, Ken. Thank you. You both ask such beautiful questions and it's cool to see the two of you like finding your way together and figuring out what this is and why you're doing it. Right on to both of you.
0: Do you have a hidden gem of documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention it deserves?
2: I don't know why it's coming to mind right now, but I'm thinking of Marjo. About a child preacher. It's a pretty amazing story. And I think it's just because I was listening to a podcast on the way down here. I was listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So I was thinking about charismatic leaders and why people follow cults. And yeah, so that, that's where my head was this morning.